welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, I'm Chad, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products that customers love. That's what everyday innovators are about, always looking for opportunities to do a better job creating value for customers, creating products that customers love. I'm on the road right now, taking a trip throughout the Northeast of the United States, talking with innovators and product managers where I find them. At the encouragement of a friend, I took my two kids to visit the Henry Ford, a museum of innovation near Detroit. It was created by Henry Ford as a tribute to his friend Thomas Edison, and it's filled with amazing things. It's a great place to learn the things that I love so much, which are innovations and inventions. And I'm bringing you a small slice of it in this episode, discussing a few innovators with a focus on three, Thomas Edison, Steve Wozniak, and Steve Jobs. And to help us understand these innovators better, my guest is Dr. Kristen Gallerno, Curator of Communications and Information Technology at the Henry Ford. Kristen is responsible for the development of collections and experiences relating to computing, sound, broadcast, graphic communication, office equipment, photography, and motion images, and other such related technology areas. You can see that she likes technology. She's also an artist with her media being sound. She recently released a new book from MIT Press titled High Static Deadlines, Sonic Spectras and the Object Hereafter. Interesting title, and it's literally mixtape in effect of exploring boundaries in sound, culture, and belief. I met with Kristen in person, so the audio will sound a little bit different in this episode from some other interviews. You'll find the written summary of our discussion at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 195. I hope you enjoy learning more about a few of these famous innovators and the traits that made them so famous. Kristen, thank you for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast. Yes, happy to be here. So we are at the Henry Ford, and that is the name of this facility, the Henry Ford. Tell us how that came about. What is this place? So the Henry Ford is, uh, well, broadly, it's a nonprofit education institution, which doesn't really give you a lot of ideas about what we are. But uh, when you start to dig a little deeper, you'll realize that we're a collection of venues. So we have mm-hmm. the the Henry Ford Museum. Mm-hmm. We have Greenfield Village. We have the Ford Rouge Factory Tour. And we also have a giant screen movie experience. Um, in addition to that, we also have a research center where people can come and research and use our archives. And we also have a, on, uh, a sort of on-site public charter high school. So we're really a collection of a lot of different things. Altogether, we're this like pretty immense, immersive cultural institution dedicated to history. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. I have the opportunity to partake in some of it today, and we'll do some more tomorrow. Saw the factory tour of where the F-150 is made. Yes. And then the Innovation Museum here. Can you just give us an idea of what people could expect if they come to visit the Henry? Well, you're going to see, um, no, no surprise, no shocker, you're going to see some cars. <laughs> but uh, you, you walk in and you see things that are large scale. You'll see airplanes hanging from the ceiling. You'll see massive trains and think, how did they get those? 
those in the museum? Um, the answer is there are train tracks running into the museum. Uh, we have some of the oldest steam engines left in the world. We have industrial equipment that changed the world. Mm-hmm. So we have big things. We also have big ideas. We have the Rosa Parks bus. So mm-hmm. we're very dedicated to social transformation stories too. And those sort of ephemeral stories related to uh, political history. Um, we also have small scale things that affected people's continue to affect people's everyday lives. So things like computers and telephones and everyday technology, as well as uh, creative output, like uh, glass collections of art glass. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so everyday objects to objects that change the world, basically. Yeah, design influences. I, I saw you yes. know, the kind of the mainstay of American agriculture growth of instruments for agriculture and farming. Yeah. Just a wide variety. And so it really, I wasn't quite sure what to expect, right? So I looked up things online a little bit, but got the impression that it certainly covers a bit of Henry Ford's legacy, yeah. but really about innovation and inventors in America throughout mm-hmm. time in America. Yeah, we were actually founded as the Edison Institute, which a lot mm. of people don't realize. But if you walk into the museum, the first thing you're going to see is a large cornerstone with Thomas Edison's um, signature assigned into it. And that was from the original founding of this place. So Henry Ford actually founded this place as a tribute to his friend, Thomas oh, to Edison. Edison. So, um, yeah. And then over time, we became the Henry Ford. So, yeah, as you said, we have a, a lot of things that maybe people wouldn't really expect to see, like agricultural equipment. Yeah, agriculture is interesting for product managers, and a lot of product managers will be familiar with some version of, sometimes it's called the chasm model or the innovation diffusion model. It's how uh, new technology is provided, early innovators, early adopters are first likely to buy it because it's new and it solves some little problem for them. And then in time, if the product becomes more more valuable, it starts attracting a larger majority of the market share and it grows through that and you know, eventually declines. And this uh, innovation diffusion model was actually first based on how agriculture items, agriculture innovation was purchased by farmers and how it grew in the market through farming. So there's some old old history and roots <laughs> there that probably a lot of us product managers actually don't know, but I, thought, I found that interesting when I found that out too. Yeah. Tell us about your role here. So I'm the curator of communications and information technology. Mm-hmm. Um, which uh, those of you who are listening to the podcast might have some ideas what that is. Um, your mind might go to computing, and that's absolutely correct. So I take care of computing collections. I take care of the more ephemeral things like the culture of the internet. I take care of uh, hacking and um, sort of uh, back-end processes to the things we use every day, like Ethernet cables. Uh, I also take care of early office technology, reaching back to the uh, 19th century, Print technology, broadcasting, so radio and television, video games. Technology broadly is is everything, of course, but my specific areas of collecting are, are more related to those things. Okay. And you have specific innovators that you're responsible for. And- yeah. Yeah. People like Thomas Edison, people like Steve Wozniak. There's, there's so many. Buckminster Fuller. People that maybe a lot of people haven't heard about. People like Wesley Clark and um, Alan Turing is a big name, obviously. Um, so, yeah, I, the the joy of, of computing technology is that there are these teams of people, you know, but then a lot of people immediately go to the big names and, and rightfully so often that's right. where the idea generated from. But um, so I'm interested in the minor players as well as the large historical players. Yeah. And the team perspective is important because we kind of get drawn to the big name, mm-hmm. you know, like Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. 
certainly he, he was a creative force, a great designer, but uh, it took a team of people to make anything happen. You know, early on he had his partner, the Waz. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I wanted to ask you about some of these innovators. And one that you mentioned before was Edison. So we got to start there just because yeah. you know, it's hard to avoid Edison. And we probably most think about Edison as the electric light bulb creator mm-hmm. and maybe power distribution. Mm-hmm. But he has his name on over a thousand patents, so he did an awful lot. Yes. And I want to find out just more about that. Uh, what's one of your favorite Edison inventions? Um, well, one of my favorite inventions relates to office technology, or at least it started as office technology. Hmm. And it's the story of the electric pen, which uh, Edison started working on in about 1875, give or take. The electric what? The electric pen, like oh, a writing instrument. Mm-hmm. And what it was, was a motorized pen, and you would uh, have this sort of platen or um, sort of like tablet situation, and there would be uh, paper over top of it, and you would run this electric pen, which was connected up to a, a wet cell battery over this platen with this paper on it, it would uh, vibrate tiny little holes in this piece of paper and basically make a stencil. Mm. So eventually the electric pen, I like it because it evolves into a couple different technologies. First, it evolves into the mimeograph, which of course leads to office duplication technology. Mm. So we can get to the photocopier pretty easily through the mimeograph. But we can also get to the history of electric tattooing through the Mm. uh, Mm -hmm. electric pen. Because when you think of a pen, that's vibrating at a very high rate and it's it's got a little needle on it uh you just add an ink reservoir onto that thing and there you go you've got the uh, modern electric tattoo gun the technology that was used in that pen is pretty much it hasn't changed a whole lot so it's like a very uh pop culture modern way of looking at historic uh, innovation and we talk about past forward a lot here at the museum but it's one of those things that's kind of like it's so rooted in the past and in the future and the now at the same time mm-hmm. that it's a very fascinating invention. So everyone with a tattoo needs to thank Edison for yeah, me included. having started this. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. And what do you have? Um, well, I've got arts? a lot of tattoos. So, um, yeah, I've, I've got over 30 tattoos. But, you know, there's this great story, and I've been trying really hard, and a lot of other historians, too, to confirm the story that Edison himself actually had a tattoo. Interesting. I'd like to find out more of that, but nobody has the definitive answer. Okay, so if you happen to have a definitive answer to that, please let me know. Send me an email. When it comes to him as a man, there's been lots written on him. Mm-hmm. One of the things I've been inspired to do coming here is get regrounded with some uh, biographical work. As we were chatting a little bit ago, wanting to find, you know, works on some, on Edison and some others too that I'm very interested to read through some of their works in part because I like getting to know the, the person, you know, and I just love getting people's stories and, and how they ended up doing what they're doing. What's your insight, and not, we're not going to do a whole uh, examination of Edison, but just a character trait that you think helped him be successful uh, with all that he was able to create? I think at the Henry Ford, one sort of innovator trait that applies to some of my favorite innovators across the board, Edison among them, is this idea of learning from from failure. Mm. So we learn from failure. And um, Edison was really good at that because he pushed ideas to the limits. And just when, you know, he thought that he would have completely exhausted an idea or a project or reached a dead end, he would push it just a little bit further. Mm-hmm. And we're, um, you know, because of that 
character trait, we have things like his work on the incandescent lamp, um, or the, the light bulb, as most people call it. And uh, he did so many materials explorations to get to that final idea through trying to figure out what the proper filament to use inside that light bulb would be. And it took, you know, using all kinds of different natural materials, metals, and ultimately he ends up discovering this process of carbonation as being really important to mm-hmm. that. Yeah, he didn't get a lot of sleep uh, in the whole culture of Menlo Park. Uh, his his lab was um, a fascinating thing, and I wish I could kind of step back in time and just, you know, be a fly on the wall for 10 minutes in there. Right. Yeah. Yeah, apparently he took, took a lot of cat naps he did. in his lab. Yeah, he apparently would sleep like three hours a night, right. but then, and a lot of people think that's all he slept, but actually, we have photographs in our collection here of him taking cat naps on top of his desk and under his desk at Menlo Park, so yeah. we know he, he got some shut-eye during the day. You got something. <laughs> yeah, such a great experimenter and brute force, right, in, in some sense, trying so many different materials to see how can I make something glow, yeah. the electric light bulb, and move us off of gas, which had all its problems, yeah. and uh, into the uh, electric era. I've read a l- just a little bit about him and Tesla, and that was something that Tesla, I think wrongly so, uh, did not like in Edison, right? He, he's, he saw him as uh, ha- having to do these brute force experiments instead of thinking through the problems more carefully. Mm-hmm. Like, but it works. Mm-hmm. And as product managers, we still, we, we want to do quick experiments. Because like you said, we're learning, and that means failing, mm-hmm. right? When we're doing something new, we're going to fail, and we should expect that and be comfortable with that and do quick experiments, yeah. right? And if, yeah, it, absolutely. if you run through a few hundred materials before you get to your electric light bulb that works, you accomplish something really big. Right. right? Yeah. We so. talk about rapid prototyping all the time today. Yeah. I mean, that's essentially what Edison was doing. and Luckily, he had the resources to do it. <laughs> yes. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute. This episode of The Everyday Innovator is brought to you by Product Innovation Educators, your one place for online training to make the move from product manager to product master. When you enroll in one of our online courses, it's like having Chad McAllister as your personal coach. In each course, you get video lessons, added resources, and a private community for collaboration with other product managers and innovators. And, of course, you get direct access to Chad, who will answer your questions and get you heading in the right direction. Past students tell us the concepts, practices, and tools are valuable, but the real benefits they gain are being more confident, increasing their influence in their organization, and generating greater success for themselves and their company. There are four levels of training to become a product master. Find your level now. Get started by going to the everydayinnovator.com forward slash master. You're one place to become a product master. The everydayinnovator.com forward slash master. Don't wait. Get started now. Another one that you mentioned was Steve Jobs mm-hmm. and also his early partner, the Waz. So I don't know which one you want to dive into uh, between those. Uh, I'm, I'm you have something I'm really curious about Steve Jobs. I'm not sure where your expertise lies mostly. So why don't you guide that first? Yeah. I mean, I know of, of Steve Jobs' legacy, obviously, through Apple Computer. Um, you know, he it's no no shocker. He was a marketing genius. And um, Steve Wozniak is, is probably who I've spent the most time working with and doing research on just because of the nature of my collections here. Mm-hmm. So I actually had the opportunity to collect a working Apple One computer. And I actually got to learn how to program BASIC on that. So it's a perfect 
perk of the job. Um, there's only about 13 or so operating Apple One computers left in, in the world. And, wow. and we, ha- we have one here at the Henry Ford. It's not on display yet, but it will be in the future. So I've spent a lot of time just like staring at Steve Wozniak's circuit patterns and his decisions that he's made through the, the physical construction of computers here. But I grew up in rural Canada, yeah, you know, in the 80s. And so a lot of my sort of knowledge of computing history came through this sort of lens of having an older brother who was up to sort of like, you know, gentle 1980s hacking, which was not what what it is now. A lot of it was built on the backs of like pranks, right? And and Steve Wozniak is well known as this sort of uh, classic prankster. Hmm. And so I think I feel kind of an affinity there too. It's like you can be this innovative technologically minded groundbreaking character in history but you can also have fun you know mm-hmm. so S- steve jobs and steve uh, wasn't got together early on over a game from what i understand right steve told his manager at the time that he would create this video game in a weekend breakout breakout and uh, i think uh, the was actually pulled off the hardware aspect of that and, and probably most of everything else i don't know mm-hmm. we know them as the founders of of what became apple mm-hmm. just to focus on jobs for a moment i found it interesting when he got kicked out of apple went on to do nat next and then got involved with pixar and then came back to apple from the little i've read it seems like he had possibly matured right we, we all grow through our experiences <laughs> I'm just curious what any insights that you have found along the way about his time, maybe away from Apple, how that he may have grown through that. Yeah, I mean, I think maturity is is the the keynote to your question there, and obviously there were a lot of shifts in personality. Anybody who's seen the the movie that came out about Jobs recently, you, you kind of see that it's been laid out. But one sort of interesting aspect that that we can talk about here at the Henry Ford is uh, recently I acquired um, a interesting piece of hard. Hardware. We talked about hacking a few questions back, and a lot of people don't really realize that Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs were in cahoots with one another well before Apple was ever founded. So we have this little device called a blue box, and I'm not. Are you familiar with mm. these things? So a blue box was a piece of 1970s phone freaking hardware, and that's oh. freaking with a ph. And Steve Wozniak and Jobs, they were actually, that was their first business partnership. And mm-hmm. phone freaking devices, uh, like blue boxes in particular, what you could do is you could uh, emit tones over the phone lines and you could trick out the phone lines um, into giving you free phone calls. Right. So you could make free long distance phone calls to anywhere in the world. And of course, these were highly illegal, but they're building these things in Steve Wozniak's dorm room at Berkeley. And we actually have one of those exact blue boxes here in the collection. So there's this interesting level that even predates that sort of classic Steve Jobs leaving Apple coming back where it's like, well, we're building these blue boxes and we're about to found Apple computer. This is like three years or four years before that, but we need to legitimize, Mm -hmm. right? So we need to step away from the illegal devices and sort of like, you know, count on, you know, what what is actually mattering here, which is getting computers in the hands of, of everybody. And I think through... Steve Jobs' different movements, you know, through his his career, it was always about trying to increase access to computers on some level. Mm-hmm. With the next computer, he was trying to hit the education market. Before that, with the Macintosh, he was just trying to get them into everybody's homes mm-hmm. and, and also providing these uh, powerful tools to increase people's digital creativity in life. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating pattern to, 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 to sort of account for on, on both ends. 
whether you're looking at Jobs or, or Wozniak or them in tandem together. Their relationship over time at Apple, have you looked at that as, as the relationship? I, I don't know what happened there except for the movie, right? The, at, at the, and yeah. I don't think to pick that at all, right? What happened towards the end of that relationship? I don't, I don't fully, yeah, I'm not prepared to answer that one. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't want to be on the <laughs> I spot. Know, I don't know the gossip. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, yeah. it's, it's there somewhere, but it's, yeah, not immediately popping to mind, but, okay. um, the institution here has some contact with Waz and it's yeah. ongoing. So. Yeah. We have yeah. actually a, uh, over an hour long oral history available online and we can give you contact information on how people can access that. Oh, that'd be great. I'll put mm-hmm. that in the show notes and yeah. people can find out more about that. If you look at, and we include Waz in this too, so uh, similarities and differences between, you know, say Edison and Jobs and Waz, what kind of stands out for you? The most obvious one is going to be that sort of tireless work ethic, right? But that's like no shocker. <laughs> like that's that's a pretty common principle, you know, in, in most innovators. I think in terms of the work environments, there was like that sort of high stress, high output mm-hmm. uh, call to action. If we we often talk about Menlo Park, Edison's, um, you know, work lab as being one of the first R&D labs in the world and, and sort of, you know, you can see similarities between between what was going on at Menlo Park and the sort of excitement and and things like that that were going on in Silicon Valley in the, the right. mid 1970s, so I think there's some similarities there. Uh, there there's also a lot of uh, shared uh, love of practical jokes. So um, we know that Wozniak uh, is is a very big guy for pranks. Um, uh, these pranks also went on at Menlo Park, um, but maybe in a, they're a little bit less less intense. You know, there were like, you know, beer drinking parties at Menlo Park in the middle of the night when people were trying to get work done and they would sing, you know, questionable songs. And uh, apparently one uh, practical, I guess you could call this a practical joke, um, the, one of the guys would challenge each other to feats of strength and try to like make an electrical generator go as fast as they could. I, I guess that's what they did for fun in the, in the 19th century, right? <laughs> so, um, but in terms of uh, similarities, yeah, it's just all about making existing systems better. For differences, Wozniak is living, obviously. Yeah. Apple is still a company that's going on. I guess in some ways, you know, obviously we're touched every day by Edison's innovations. What really strikes me as, as ultimately different between the two characters, though, is Edison was very much a businessman. He was very yeah. protective of his patents. But if you read about the history of Apple, you'll discover that with the uh, invention of the Apple One computer, Steve Wozniak actually just wanted to provide that as basically open source right. knowledge. He was trying to give away the circuit diagrams to people so they could build this thing themselves. And then it became monetized under the leadership of Jobs. And mm-hmm. I think the famous quote is, uh, I hadn't thought to sell these these things, meaning the Apple One computers, until uh, Steve Jobs held them up in the air and waved them around um, or something like that. Yeah. So I think that uh, the monetizing of, of ideas is, mm-hmm. is different. So. Yeah, so Jobs brought that business perspective as well. Yeah. At least in some sense. I, I know he wanted to provide accessibility, but yeah. also maybe recognizing we need a profitable company to yeah. make this happen at scale. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah really good uh, innovators to learn from. And, and no doubt there's some faults in there too. You know, oh, yeah. we, we all have our character <laughs> faults. And yeah. I don't know that, you know, the ones from Jobs are probably more famous and how he drove people and arguably maybe manipulated them to, mm-hmm. you know, do at times what he wished to happen and, his perspective on life of, um, I was, what was this called? The distortion, his way of seeing reality in a completely different way, right? Right. As he imagined the future. Yeah. Um, sometimes motivating people towards that, sometimes manipulating them towards that, mm-hmm. right? Any examples of, of Edison maybe being the tyrant at times? Um, 
Um, you know, I think he was definitely a taskmaster. Mm-hmm. Like you worked long hours at Menlo Park, but um, in terms of outright tyrant, I mean, that's yeah, that's kind of hard to comment on. Nothing's really coming to mind. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious. There, yeah. there was a book uh, some time ago. Uh, forget the exact title. Something like the uh, CEO jerks of Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. it raised the hypothesis based on who they were examining. Do you have to be a jerk to be a CEO in Silicon Valley? And um, I just. Yeah. Know, curious how I hope far not. back this. I hope not too, right? <laughs> yeah. the, at least for employees' sake, that that's that's not not necessarily the case. Yeah. So. We all like a good innovation quote. I like asking about innovation quotes. Do you have one for us? And can you share why you chose it? Yeah, I have. I have like these sets of quotes that kind of work together, and uh, I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna go with this one. So uh, Arthur C. Clarke said that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Mm. And I like that because it's sort of about technology disappearing if it's working properly. Mm-hmm. And then we've got Buckminster Fuller saying, I see God in the instruments and mechanisms that work reliably. So he's basically saying the same thing as Arthur C. Clarke. Um, but then related to, to you know, I'm, I'm huge on sort of uh, giving just dues to, uh, you know, female innovators. Uh, mm-hmm. Radia Perlman, who was the inventor of STP, or um, Spanning Tree t- Protocol. So mm-hmm. a lot of people refer to her as the mother of the internet. She got a little salty with the same idea. And she said, the world would be a better place if more engineers like me hated technology. The stuff I design, if I'm successful, nobody will ever notice. Things will right. just work and be self-managing. That's... So, yeah, as a technology curator, here I am telling you that technology should disappear. <laughs> But, um, yeah, I'm very interested in, in sort of acknowledging those back-end systems that people often don't think about, mm-hmm. the Ethernet cables that are running through walls or the fact that your wireless technology isn't really wireless. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's an elegant solution. It solves a problem we have in a way that doesn't cause more friction in our lives. Yes. Right? It just kind of blends in. And you have to tell me the name, again, of the guy in the middle. Oh, Buckminster Fuller? Yes. He was an architect. Buckminster Fuller, yeah. I know. And he made this round steel house, right? Mm-hmm. So it's here. I, 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 <laughs> I've seen it. It's amazing. Yeah. So I, I was more impressed with my kids who knew what who knew him before I showed up. And, really? And uh, knew of him and my son who was very excited to Somebody's see teaching his, your kids well. <laughs> be my wife, clearly, yeah. to see his, his round house, yes. Yeah. And, that was very interesting. Yeah, if you think of geodesic domes from the 60s, yeah, he's right. had his hands in that. So you know his stuff. Maybe you just don't recognize the name. Right. One more time, I just wanted to make sure we leave with an overview, too, of the Henry Ford. Mm-hmm. People coming here, the the big big attractions are? Um, at Thomas Edison's Menlo Park. We have a very large-scale installation related to the, the history of mobility, we have steam engines, um, but then we have things from that are recognizable from your everyday life. We have an exhibit dedicated to the history of technology through the decades, whether that's sound recording or everyday domestic items or things like Ataris and computers like the Macintosh. Very good. We're more than cars. <laughs> we're, we're more than cars. Yes. Right. And there's the Greenfield Village, which is a yes. living history. We also have Greenfield Village. So um, that's a whole day in and of itself. We have approximately 80 historic structures out in Greenfield Village. So they are all individual buildings, um, things like the Wright Brothers Cycle Shop. We have stuff here from George Washington Carver and, um, yeah, just tons of, tons of uh, beautiful old buildings that you can walk in and sort of experience through an immersive environment. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. morning I had the opportunity to tour the uh, Rouge factory. Rouge? Rouge. Rouge. Yeah. 
factory where the Ford F-150 is made. And that was just fascinating for so many reasons. You know, just the sure scale of the facility uh, was interesting. The sustainability practices, the really environmental green practices and use were interesting. And then the there was a fun theater experience that was, was just <laughs> was dynamic and cool. Yeah. But then the factory itself, obviously, where, where, where F-150s are stamped out and put together was just, I like factory tours. That was a lot of fun to see. Yeah. So. It's definitely worth it. Pretty good. People that want to find out first more about uh, your work or connect with you, and then certainly find out more about the Henry Ford. How can we do this? Yeah, um, my uh, LinkedIn profile is online. Um, I'm sure you'll have a link to that on your, your show notes. I will put um, that in show notes. And then uh, if you want to find out more about the Henry Ford, which you should, um, you can visit us at thehenryford.org. And online, you will find a lot of deep dives into some of the histories that we've been talking about today, including extensive oral histories with people like Steve Wozniak, um, uh, as well as um, sort of lightweight, digestible kind of lunchtime uh, experiences uh, called Connect Threes, which are sort of one-minute videos where we connect uh, our artifacts together in surprising ways. Oh, that'd be fun. Okay, so show notes to those things as yes. well. Kristen, thank you so much for your time. No problem. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Everyday Innovator podcast, where you make your move from product manager to product master, gaining the influence and confidence you need to create products customers love. Find the summary of the discussion with Kristen, all those wonderful resources she talked about, about the great innovators, and well as resources at the Henry Ford and collections that they've put together that are available online for us to learn more about these innovators at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 195. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.